So, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Nate Green. I'm subbing in for Mike. And so, why don't we um, open our class with prayer this morning? And Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to um, talk about the things in your word. Um, we ask that your spirit be with us, that you would um, that you would be with our conversation, that you would encourage us, and that we would go from here uh, more determined to serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. <coughs> See, you pray and more people appear. I love it. So, okay. Um, so, as you guys know, Mike is not here today. He is gone. Uh, we've been doing a class on marriage for, I don't know how many weeks now, maybe two months? Three? I don't know how long. But um, since he's not here, and we're kind of in the middle of our marriage discussion, he asked me to administer a marriage midterm this morning. So we're going to see what people have learned, and um, basically I'll be asking questions, and you guys get to answer. The good news is, uh, this is a discussion, so nobody has to write anything down. You can have open book, which means if you want to look at your Bible, you can look at your Bible. Um, you can consult with other people, so um, hopefully there will be discussion. So, some of the things we've talked about, some of the things we haven't talked about. So, um, any questions before we dive in? Alright. So, question number one. This is a fill-in-the-blank question. Um, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become blank. One flesh. One flesh. Okay. I'm an alien. I've just come here from another planet. I don't know what that means. Who can explain to me what it means to be one flesh? Well, I think covertly this is speaking about sexual union. Okay. Is that is that the only thing that it applies to? I've heard people talk about this very differently. I mean, I, I think there's implications beyond that. But. Okay. spiritual component to the one flesh. Is there a spiritual component? Or do we disagree with that? The, the, reason, why, the reason why I ask that is because um, one of the things I've always thought about when somebody talks about one flesh and they talk about the wonderful thing that it is to be married to a believer is there are oftentimes people who are not married to a believer. And so they don't have that spiritual component with them. So, how, how do we, how, how does being one flesh apply to unbelievers? Or does it not? Is it the physical aspect only? It's the physical and the commitment that uh, they have um, a about to be together and under the law of marriage. Okay. 
those two aspects, but not the spiritual. Okay. Is it, is it good? Yeah. I was just going to say, right before, it talks about leaving your mother and father, mm-hmm. and sort of their household, their rules, their way of doing things, their social structures, mm-hmm. and you have to make your own, and what works in your own home, and how roles may husband and wife roles may change, but a commitment to being a family that's different from the family that your husband grew up in and that you, mm-hmm. you grew up in. Right. Um, I always thought that was interesting because when God says that to Adam and Eve, there's no father and mothers to leave. He says that. <laughs> well, but he, it, I think that's a great example of how Scripture often does things for our benefit and not necessarily, um, it, it's not primary directed, primarily directed at the, whoever hears it at the time. So um, I'm sure they understood it because God helped them understand it, but it's definitely for our benefit. Should unbelievers still get married? There are some people that think that, that some some pastors that I know that they won't marry unbelievers. Yep. Well, I, I mean, from our perspective, I think it's a, it's a creation origins. God put it right there in Genesis chapter one. It's applicable to all humanity. And uh, so, I mean, I think that's why you know a lot. I know a lot of pastors who would say it's not fundamentally a religious ordinance. It's mm-hmm. fundamentally an ordinance that's given to all humanity. And then for believers, there's this spiritual dimension that's added as well. Great. I agree with that. Any other thoughts on um, One Flesh? All right, we'll move on to question number two. Question number two. Good morning. morning. We're doing uh, Pastor Mike's marriage midterm. All right. Uh, Question number two. We're going to do a little analysis. Um, This is not completely related to marriage, but it's tangentially related. Uh, last week we sang the song in church, Rebu- uh, Rejoice Ye Pure in Heart. Anyone familiar with that? So here's what, uh, here's the second stanza, and I'd like you to subject your analysis to what this says. Let me know if anything sounds a little off. Alright, Rejoice Ye Pure in Heart, verse 2. Bright youth and snow-crowned age, strong men and maidens meek, Raise high your free exulting song, God's wondrous praises speak. Any thoughts? I like the meek maidens part. You like the meek maidens part? <laughs> you like the strong men part? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Is, is, are those appropriate gender roles? I think there are just words picked up to make the lyrics go. I agree with that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know. It's not a scriptural mandate. It's not from the scripture. It's just okay. Does the scripture present a different picture? Well, I mean, both of those are scriptural mandates for all of us. Both forms of strength and meekness are scriptural mandates for both men and women. Um, we do also see scripture itself refer to women as a weaker vessel. I'm not sure that meek is something that we only want to attribute to women, because otherwise if we have blessed are the meek, that's not women only. And um, anybody know who was praised as being very meek? Moses. 
Moses basically said Moses was a guy he probably didn't raise his voice to anyone. He managed to get his point across without being uh, while, while being very mean. So uh, I'm not trying to bash or Joshi pure and hard, but I think it's helpful just to think through sometimes the lyrics of the songs that we hear. Sometimes we just kind of assume that everything is right in order, and sometimes there's uh, room for improvement. So certainly. Or sometimes it's just um, the context that was written, or sometimes it isn't. A, it's not a fundamental truth. Mm-hmm. It's just the words that was used in that verse, mm-hmm. you know. And we're, I think God knows we're intelligent enough to know that men and women can be strong and mm-hmm. some more meek than others, I would say, and some stronger than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cultural context, yeah. right? I can absolutely. You know, some, you know, I, I have a good friend, um, she's um, from North Africa, and it's funny, I mean, we have very similar personalities coming from very different households, and it's super fun to see how sometimes she's testing them like, oh, I'm glad you're in my country, but if you're talking about this stuff with somebody else, you would say, proud. You know, but it's just, but I understand that her cultural context, and I know she's not trying to be mean or, or you know, I totally get that she's Muslim, so her, you know, her, the, the, the her, her religion also influences how she thinks and how she speaks. Um, so I think God knew we were smart enough to get that. <laughs> I have children, and one of the things that I'm always thinking about as I hear things, whether it's um, reading a children's book that's designed for them or, you know, uh, in a service with them, I know that they're hearing things, and I want to make sure that if there's something that needs to be explained, that I want to be ready to explain it. And so when something like um, something can come up, it's an opportunity to talk to them both about the cultural context, about when things were written, um, Different, different time periods in history, I think people had different um, temptations and way, ways of speaking that we probably wouldn't have. Uh, and also, uh, I think when you talk about children, I think it's very important to teach children that we, we would be doing a disservice to people today and to people of the past when we only judge history with our eyes of today, of the modern social context that we have in 2019. Because, as I said, it's a different time in history and it shouldn't be judged by my lenses only. No, which lens should we use to judge? God's lens, I would say. We should. So we, we because we're talking in a Christian context. Yes. But when you don't have a secular context, so I think people, it's, it was much harder. But, um, also, think about why am I right in 2019? What I hold absolute truth. Maybe my absolute truth that I hold in 2019 if it's not God's truth. It will be something different in a hundred years. Mm. Well, that's, that's... For unbelievers, it's definitely... The, the, the tides are always changing for them. Yeah. But for us, the good thing is we have scripture, so we can always compare it to scripture because that's not changing whether it's 1800 or 2019 or 2200. So, um, we're thankful for that. Yeah. 
As it relates to kids, kind of like what you said, it made me think of um, kids tend to be very literal. And so when they hear things, we probably should follow up with them to see if they, especially if it's, you know, potentially Christian jargon. I can't think of a specific example. But where I'm tying this to is when we came to this country and my parents were trying to learn English. And, you know, I was maybe a little bit further along, but they always asked me to some of the idioms, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, when somebody said, well, that's cool, you know, they're, he's trying to attach a literal meaning to it. It's mm -hmm. like, what does it mean when say someone's cool? And I just remember having the hardest time not knowing what the idioms were, trying to explain it. Uh, and there are, there are plenty of idioms in the Bible as well that we, that for our context, it's hard to, it's hard to deal with. Um, you get something where somebody talks about someone who's bald. What, what, what does that mean? Well, in the context of, of the Old Testament, in a lot of cases, it means that they just shaved their head and they were mourning. So the first time I heard the story of um, Elijah goes up to heaven, Elisha comes back, he meets the group of uh, boys, and they jeer him and call him a bald head. It's probably because he shaved his head because he'd been mourning that Elijah left. Um, if you don't have that context, you just think they're making fun of him because he's bald. So... Um, and there's a lot of cases like that um, in, in, the, in the scripture. So, uh, oh, well, certainly they were, but, but absolutely. Uh, okay. <laughs> Not meaning to call anyone out here. Good morning. All right, question number four. Who submits? We all submit. Oh, all right. You all You too. There's different bosses, you know. Different bosses. Okay. You need to, you need to, you need to show your work. Show your work. As far as that. Yeah. Um, I think we all call to be submissive to God. Okay. I do, I think we believe that the Bible says that wives to be submissive to their husbands. Okay. And, but even when the Bible calls us to be submissive to our husband, it also calls us husbands to love us as, as God loves the church and loves us as themselves. So, if the husbands are loving their wives, mm -hmm. so the submission will not be a burden. Even though, 2019, you know, it's very hard in a secular world because the message you, you bombard is that are not in uh, accordance with the Bible. And when you become a Christian as an adult, after growing up with all those messages, it, it makes the job way harder. Um, but I do think that we are called to be submissive to husbands as much as our husbands are called to love us. And like God wants his church. And you guys have a hard job too? Uh, yes, we do. <laughs> so, Philo uses this word, at least uh, parents, children and parents. Yep. I don't know if submit's the right word, but it's obviously. Usually you just obey, but it's obey, right? Yeah. yeah.
one of the things that I think, it doesn't make submission, it doesn't completely make it easy, but one of the things that's helpful, I think, is recognizing that there is a response, for the people that we're supposed to submit to, there's a responsibility there for which they're going to have to have to give an account to God. So, um, this one is spelled out very clearly, um, to submit to your elders, it says, because they are the ones that have to give an account. So, at the, at the end of the day, husbands are going to have to give a special account for the way that they uh, were the head of their household. Um, those who are in government are going to have to give an account for how they ran the government. Um, parents are going to have to give an account for how they raised their children. So I, I think it's helpful for us just to remember, and in all these cases, it's not, it's not an easy job. And we can make it harder for people if we just say, we want to do our own way, rather than recognizing that um, in these cases, sometimes these decisions might be wrong. If they're not, if they're not, they might not be causing us to sin, but you know, they might be making a decision that we don't agree with. But at the end of the day, our job is to let them do that in the role that they have, unless it's causing us to sin, and then um, recognizing that they'll have to give an account. Alright, so we have a submitting on this side, as, as was mentioned earlier, and then husbands, what are they supposed to do? Too loud. Loud their wives. Okay, how? Christ loves the church. Yikes. What does this look like? Sorry? Sorry. Sorry. Sacrifice. Okay. So that means they're giving something up? What are, what are they giving up? <laughs> Everything. Wow. Okay. Christ gave up himself. Life of poverty. But, uh, life of poverty? Okay. Not taking a like. You put your number. Your wife spends a lot of money. <laughs> 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 um, no, but really, okay. Most of us will probably not be called to die for our wives. Most marriages don't end up that way. So, what what are the practical realities of kind of on a day to day level what this looks like practically? Die to your your needs. Die to your um, maybe your your habits, your pleasurable things that you could have done if you didn't have a family. Okay. So in a way, it's like die to the old and alive to the new. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. Other thoughts? Is this an active thought, husbands, that you keep in mind regularly? Or is it kind of like, yeah, I'm supposed to do this? Somehow it happens. Right before I fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a, this is a very hard one. I think I think this one is easier to understand. I think this one might be harder to apply. That's just my personal thought. Maybe not. Maybe everyone else finds that it's just easy. Yeah, because you have to make yourself self-aware of that constantly. Mm -hmm. I might uh, put forward that the die to self form of love is not just a command for husbands to wives, but it's another one for all of us to each other. Mm -hmm. And greater man has greater love as no man than this. And he that lies down in life, not just for his wife, but for his friends. Mm -hmm. And that's man or a woman lying down their life, not just that. Right. Right. Um, th th there is a lot of. 
there is a lot of crossover, things that apply to both, but I think we do have this in the marriage context specifically where one is called out um, over the other. It may have to do with, um, I don't want to be too stereotypical, but sometimes these are what each gender needs to hear more than the other. Okay. Um, let's move on to our next question. Are there ways which a Christian's experience in marriage, for those of you that are married, help us understand how we should act as a Christian? So I'm thinking of like our marriage is kind of like a microcosm of how we should be acting to the world. Yes? Well, probably the way you deal with conflict. Okay. Because you're married, there are going to be differences of opinion that are much more in your face, if you will, and that can be a microcosm of how you deal with conflict in the outside world. Okay. Has anyone ever been out and someone, they've heard someone talking badly about God or Jesus? You're out there, maybe somebody doesn't know you're a Christian, and they kind of go off and say something with which you disagree. Raise your hand if you've been there. I have been there. Okay, thank you. Just making sure everyone's still awake. Are you comfortable saying something in that scenario? Do you jump right in? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's something, but yeah, it's very uncomfortable to like call them out. Call them out. Yeah, it's like calling out, right? Especially if there's other people around. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. If this is a one-on-one, I think it's different too. So, so what if they were talking that way about your wife? And they said, oh man, that Melissa, she never tells the truth. Or her point, she's terrible. Would, would you feel more comfortable jumping in? Yeah, but I'd probably not have to say I <laughs> Hope the couch is comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> well, would would we we be more likely to jump in? And if so, why is that? If you didn't know it was your wife, though, it's like you didn't know it was your god. Okay, so, so if, if they didn't know, if they didn't know it was your wife, you still wouldn't say anything. Well, it'd be very awkward and interesting to like diffuse it real quick, but you wouldn't like. It. You wouldn't just start like. Oh no, she's a great woman. Or you'd say something like, uh, "She's my wife," and then you probably. What, what basis do you have to say whatever it is that you're saying? Or um, I, I don't know. I would feel more comfortable. Be very strange just arguing with you on that point, but maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, I think for sure we would. Most of us would be more comfortable jumping in. And in my family, we would surely fight it off because we can talk bad about our people. Nobody else can. So I, when you said that, I picture my dad, and I'm seeing that before. It's like, man, yeah, yeah, we just go off. <laughs> so should we? Should we be more comfortable that way, or should we recognizing how we would feel if somebody's talking about our wife, also have that same response? And we don't need to bite people's head off necessarily, but defend the honor of someone who is being unjustly charged with something that they, it, it's just not true. Um, what about uh, public praising of people? So if someone's spouse does something 
really well for them. Often we are there to, or say somebody notices something and it's something that your spouse is responsible for. Uh, I think many of us would be comfortable to say like, oh yeah, by the way, my wife did that. And she gets the credit and everybody feels good. But in the cases of where it's clear that God has done something, uh, we might not be so quick to jump in and give him the credit for that. Um, I, I just thought it was interesting to compare there's the situations that I've been in where I've kind of felt uncomfortable because I know that God is either not getting the credit or is getting unfairly blamed. But then if they were actually talking about um, my spouse, I would definitely jump in to say something about it. I'd feel much more comfortable. Um, so that kind of made me realize maybe I should jump in more in those situations. But I think sometimes... I think it's easier to, to, to give credit to God um, than to defend, but at the same time, I think that God doesn't really need to be defended all the time. And, and it's only natural because we have a human connection with our spouse. Say, well, get back to you on that. Um, 
and again, I'm not saying you should always jump in in every situation, but uh, I always think of um, at some point, this the person's going to die, they're going to have to face God, and it, they, they may well recognize there's someone here that had an opportunity to say something to me, and then they didn't say anything to me. And I think we do want to take those opportunities, have we have them in a wise way, um, but we don't want to we're given opportunities to say something for a reason, and we should take those opportunities when we have them. Bobby, were you going to say something? Sorry, there's nothing in the No, I was just um, thinking of what um, was said earlier, that the context of society we live in today, this this whole, really talking about Christianity almost taboo, and, and if you think about not too long ago, it was common topic, you know. It wasn't so much of being afraid of talking about faith as, I mean, I think within the time that I'm alive, alive, um, things has changed. And maybe it's just this, this area that is a lot more this way, maybe if I go to a different part of the country or, or go, you know, um, I still go back home depending where you are, it's, it's still very similar. But, you know, it's context, like, I cannot talk about religion with any of the students I have. And I think that's, in a sense, because it's a government <coughs> school, a public school, so if I say that my Muslim friend can talk about it with her, you know what I mean? Like, it can get a bit complicated. But I think it just creates this whole, we're not going to talk about kind of mentality and and it can get <coughs> pretty complicated but you know on the early church that's all people talked about on the you know even at the beginning of the history of, of church um, in America or anywhere in the 1800s, 1700s like that was that was what people talked about. That was they went to school to study. So it was it was it was it was more culturally yeah, accepted. accepted, partially because you know our country was part, part of the people that came over wanted religious freedom, and so there was more access to that. Now I think we've had a shift to um, Christianity being turned into something that's hateful, and so you hate certain people because you don't agree with what they're doing, and so that's um, yeah. it's, there's definitely a different perception of. But it do have, depending, and, and like we're all saying that we got to be wise and, and kind of explain to people, look, I, the fact that I don't agree with this doesn't mean I hate the message. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, absolutely. All right. Um, last question, extra credit, bonus question. It's a hard question. Um, does anyone know what the last marriage-related reference in the Bible is? It is, there's something in the verse that it is only, the word is only used in the context of marriage. That's a hard question. Um, it's Revelation 22, 17, and it says this. Uh, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Anybody know what that means? Why, 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 why do we have the bride in there? Church. Okay. So what's the church supposed to do? Um, 
Come, okay, great. I think this is the, I don't know, it's a while again. It's showing a relationship of like the honeymoon, the, the starting of marriage, the, the, it's done, and now let's enjoy this marriage thing, I guess. Well, I guess. To whom are they speaking? To, to whom is are the, are, are the spirit and the bride saying come? They're saying it to those who are thirsty, those who desire the water of life, those who need to hear the gospel. So there's an invitation there. I just thought it was interesting that the last verse in the scripture that was related, had anything related to marriage, was a picture of the church reaching out to those who need to, need to know about Jesus. And I think that's something that, as the bride, so we've, we've talked about kind of a lot about individual roles today, but collectively, we are the bride of Christ, and we're his church. And it was just striking to me that the emphasis there, at the very end of Revelation, was outreach to those who need to know. And there's an invitation to them to come hear the gospel, come uh, drink living water, and I think that's something that we should also keep in mind as a priority. This is, we are the bride of Christ, collectively and individually, as we go um, out to the world. And, and remember, the Spirit is at work, like it says, the Spirit and the bride. It is. It is. And, and I think uh, what is talking about those who are thirsty here, those are people that are needy. I think we all know people that are needy out there, whether or not they know that they're their need is for Christ or not, um, we have the opportunity to speak with them and invite them. Say, come. Come, let me tell you about um, my Savior. Any final thoughts before we close the prayer? Alright. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to talk about uh, marriage that you have created for us, both as um, a benefit to us here in this life and as a picture of um, Christ in his church. We ask that you would um, help us as we seek to submit to one another, to love one another as you love the church, to um, really be committed to sharing this good news with others who need to hear it as well. We ask that you be with us as we um, meet together uh, to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.